Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is good to be together. It's good to sing to our God together. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and open it to Proverbs chapter 19. We're going to spend more time in the book of Proverbs for the next number of weeks, and we've got one to look at today. Um, how many of you have had the experience uh, in, in your lives of, of, of wanting to give a gift to somebody, but having no idea what you could possibly give to that person that, that would be meaningful or that they don't already have. Do you have that person in your life? Maybe you just experienced it over Christmas time, right? Like you want to give them that gift because you love them, you appreciate them, but it's just that person that it's like, what can I give that they don't already have or that they don't, that they can't get if they wanted it, right? How can I give them something meaningful? Um, well, have you ever felt that way about God, right? You ever felt that way? You have all this gratitude in your heart, all this, all this love, all this thankfulness for what he has done for you. And you don't know what to give them in, in, in return, right? I mean, we know the gospel, right? God, in his love for us, when we were dead in our sins, sent his son to live the life of righteousness that we couldn't live, and then to die the death that our sin deserves to breathe new life into us, not because of anything we'd done, but because for some reason he set his love upon us. And then if you've walked with Jesus for more than 30 seconds, you know that what's sometimes even more mind-boggling is that his love is steadfast even after you've Receive the Holy Spirit and you keep grieving the Lord through your sin. After you've been made new, you keep wandering back to the darkness. You keep choosing the creation rather than the creator to be the object of your love and worship. And, and yet when he sent Jesus for you, he knew that was who you were. He knew that's how you were going to respond to his grace. And he did it anyways. Don't you want to give that God something? Some kind of some kind of response of appreciation and gratitude. But what can we give God? What can any of us give God? The writer of Psalm 116 felt this dilemma in his soul when he wrote, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? What can we give what can we give to the God of Psalm 50 who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Or the God who in the same Psalm said that if he needed anything at all, he wouldn't ask us because everything is his. What are we going to give to this God to show our appreciation, our love for what he's done for us? Well, the right answer is obviously give him your heart. Give him your life. Right? Which is right. But even a little bit vague. 
Wouldn't it be nice if God would just speak to us plainly and say, if you want to do something for me in response to my love for you, do this. Wouldn't that be helpful? Brothers and sisters, he has. He has plainly throughout scripture, in fact, more than once. And I'm really excited to talk with you about this because this is very near and dear to my heart. I think we have so much to look forward to as God's people when we take these things seriously. I want to start with something I've never done before. I've never read you a children's book, but I think there's at least some people in the house that are going to appreciate this. Anybody ever seen this book? Ronnie Wilson's Gift? You're in for a treat. I'm going to read you Ronnie Wilson's Gift by, by Francis Chan. So... I'm sorry that you, if you can't see the pictures too well. Listen to this little story. Little Ronnie Wilson's jaw dropped in amazement. It was the first time he'd heard the real reason Jesus came to earth such a long time ago. He did that for us? That's amazing. Then an exciting idea popped into Ronnie's mind. Jesus gave me an awesome gift, so I want to give him a present too. When Ronnie got home, he tried to think of the perfect present for Jesus. His teddy bear was old and falling apart. His piggy bank had only $6.47 in it. Then Ronnie saw his baseball glove on his bookshelf. It was signed by his uncle, Jack, a player in the big leagues. Ronnie loved his glove more than anything else he owned. He thought to himself, Jesus gave me the greatest gift of all, so I want to give him the greatest gift I can. So Ronnie grabbed his glove and raced on his bike to the post office. How much will it cost to mail this glove to heaven? I only have $6.47, Ronnie explained. The mailman answered, I'm sorry, Ronnie, but we can't deliver mail to heaven. We have no way to get it there. Okay, thanks anyway, Ronnie said as he walked out the door. Ronnie rode home on his bike, thinking of different ways to get his baseball glove to Jesus when he nearly ran right into a man shuffling down the sidewalk. Sorry, sir. That's okay, son. The man smiled just a little bit, and Ronnie heard his tummy grumble. Um, have you had lunch yet? Ronnie asked the man. The man shook his head. Ronnie thought maybe he didn't have enough money to buy lunch, so Ronnie shook his piggy bank until some coins fell out. Ronnie gave the money to the man who used it to buy a hot dog with the works. Later, Ronnie went out to his backyard to jump on his trampoline. He jumped as high as he could. In fact, he jumped so high that his next-door neighbor, Jesse, saw him. What are you doing? Jesse asked. I'm trying to jump to heaven so I can give my baseball glove to Jesus. Do you want to jump with me? Ronnie asked. Jesse said, yes. Jesse and Ronnie didn't jump high enough to make it to heaven, but they had a good time trying. At the carnival the next day, Ronnie bought a giant balloon with the rest of his money. Then he tied his baseball glove to the balloon and wrote a note to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I hope you enjoy my baseball glove. Just as he was about to let his balloon fly up to heaven, he heard a little girl crying, Mommy, my balloon. Ronnie didn't like that the little girl was sad, so he gave his balloon to her. 
But now he had no way to get his gift to Jesus. Ronnie prayed, Jesus, I'm so sorry I couldn't get your present to you. I tried my hardest. Thank you anyway. That night, Ronnie had the strangest dream. He was in heaven, and Jesus said to him, Thanks for the present, Ronnie. What present? Thanks for the balloon when I was sad. Thanks for jumping on the trampoline with me when I was lonely. And thanks for the hot dog when I was hungry. What do you mean, Ronnie asked. Jesus answered, Don't you remember what I wrote in the Bible? Whatever you do for these brothers of mine, you do it for me. Billy is the man you saw near the post office. He lost everything in a fire except his faith. He had just prayed for food, and I used you to answer his prayer. Your neighbor Jesse loves me, but he's lonely. I used you to be a friend to him. And the little girl who lost her balloon, her name is Rachel. Her dad works hard but doesn't have a lot of money. So I loved it when you gave her your balloon. They are all my children, and when you give a gift to my children in need, it's the same thing as giving to me. So thanks, Ronnie. Just then, Ronnie woke up. It was the happiest dream he'd ever had, and he wore a huge smile across his face. Now he knew exactly what he was going to do. Later that day, Ronnie went to play at the park with his friend Keith. Keith had always wanted to play on a baseball team, but he didn't have a glove. So that afternoon, Ronnie gave him a surprise present. Keith had never been so excited. As Ronnie knelt by his bed that night, he looked up to heaven and whispered, Jesus, hope you enjoy the baseball glove. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That's pretty sweet. I don't care how old you are. Look with me at Proverbs 19, verse 17. Perhaps one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. It's short, so I'm going to read it again. Whoever is generous to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. It's not very long. It's not very confusing. doesn't even require much explanation, but I've got to talk for a few minutes. So I want to ask us three questions in response to this proverb that we can ask and answer together and hopefully help us leave here and not waste our lives by ignoring these precious words. So three questions. Number one, is this true? Number two, is this optional? And number three, what can we do about this? So let's answer these three questions together. Number one, is this true? Now you might be wondering, why is a pastor asking me if something in the Bible is true? You must assume I believe this is true, and I do, and I assume most of you believe this is true as well. But I think we still need to ask the question, because we have this terrible ability as humans to say we believe something, and then to not live as if we actually do. 
We have this terrible ability to say we believe something is true at some kind of an intellectual level, but then live as though we're not entirely convinced it is. Because I bet you that if I told you that there's a bank in Milwaukee that is giving out $10,000 to every single person who shows up in the next 24 hours, I bet you every single person in this room would find a way to get to Milwaukee in the next 24 hours. Assuming that you believe me, that it's actually true. And I proved to you by showing you my check with my name on it. Told you that promised on my life, I think you'd find a way. So for us to say we believe Proverbs 19.17 is true, but then for our lives not to show ample, obvious evidence that we believe it's true should probably lead us to believe that we may not be fully convinced it's true. That's why we're asking the question. Is it true that God cares so much for the poor that whenever we do anything to care for the poor, he treats it like we did it directly to him? Is it true that God cares so much for the poor that he has bound himself by oath to repay whoever lives a life of generosity toward the poor? And more pointedly, do you personally believe that those things are true? Let me tell you a quick story. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. Um, I was a special education teacher for about 10 years after I graduated college. And I, I, I loved showing up every day to a classroom of 10 or 12 kids who the rest of the school forgot about, didn't care about, didn't even know they were there and being the one person in their world that encouraged them and loved them and smiled at them. And I could have done that for the rest of my life, teach, coach football. I was a happy man um, doing what God had given me a heart to do. And um, God, in his uh, mysterious providence, led me to uh, pastoral ministry through the ministry of this church. And um, in 2013, uh, I became a full-time pastor and uh, left my teaching days behind, but I carried this ongoing burden for the weak, the poor, the needy, the outcast, the lonely. And I didn't know how I was going to walk that out as a pastor. I thought I just had to spend all my time with church people. And so I carried this to the Lord, not knowing what, what do I, what do I do? How you've, feels like you've given me this heart, this burden, and, and now what am I supposed to do about it? You also have clearly led me in this direction. Um, and so in February of 2014, I went on my first personal retreat as a pastor, uh, which I try to do a couple times a year, just go be by myself with the Lord for a few days. And, um, and I spent the first several hours just crying out to the Lord with really this burden on my heart. Um, how, what do you want me to do as a pastor? What, what, how, do I, how do I walk this out? Um, and after a few, few hours of singing to the Lord and, uh, and crying out on my knees, I remember opening my Bible. I was doing a reading plan that year, and I just opened up to my reading of the day. This doesn't happen to me every day. But there have been a few times in my life where I read something in God's word. I know it's always true, but there's certain times where it feels like God just said that to me. Have you ever had that experience? I open up after a few hours of crying out to the Lord to my reading of the day. And it was Psalm 41 and verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. 
And the word poor in Hebrew, for you to know, um, also can mean weak, needy, or lowly. Blessed is the one who remembers the poor and the weak. And I was like, yes, Lord, yes, this is, this is my heart. How? How? And the conviction that I had dropped so heavy and so deep that day, I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew the Lord was speaking to me. And, and he said, for the last 10 years, every day when the bell rings, those people come to you. Now it's your turn to go to them. I was like, how, Lord? How do I do that? I, I, yes, I want to, but what? I started like having pictures in my mind. It's like, does that mean I just start walking down the streets looking for people that need stuff? What do I, how do you do that? And I remember leaving my retreat with a heavy burden, but no clear sense of, of what to do about it. Now, um, if I were to rewind, so that was February, back in October of that year, I was sitting uh, as, a, as a new pastor, sitting in a meeting with a few, um, with a few pastors, actually with Seda Sakaguchi, was in town from Japan. I was sitting in a meeting with him, and I saw this young couple walk into the Roundhouse Cafe where I was sitting, and um, this, this, this young kid got my, had my attention. I don't know why. And as I sat there trying to pay attention to the meeting I was in, I just kept feeling like I needed to go talk to this kid and um, felt like the Lord gave me something to say to him. And so finally, I just left my meeting. I said, excuse me, guys. And I went and I sat down as this, this young man and, and young woman. And I just said, this is really weird, but I feel like God wanted me to tell you this. And if you want to talk about it any further, here's my phone number. If not, have a nice day. And I kind of headed back to my spot. And before the, that young man left that day, uh, he, he, he thanked me and, and told me that that was, uh, that was a pretty dramatic thing that I just said to him that um, we ended up getting together a few days later. And he told me why he was in some kind of a uh, a crisis of his life and needed to hear what God had to say. And God chose to use me um, to speak it to him. And we started meeting every week for a number of weeks. And, um, it was, it was, it was a, it was just an enjoyable friendship for me. But then what happened, um, a, uh, back uh, like in March. So a month after now, when a month after my, my personal retreat in March, um, I stopped being able to get a hold of this guy. And I ran into a mutual friend who I, we had connected that we had a mutual friend. And I ran into him. I said, hey, where's Joel? I haven't seen Joel in a while. And he goes, oh, he's over at Wayside Cross. And I was like, what's Wayside Cross? And I'd lived here for, I don't know, lived in Aurora for a few years. And I was like, what's Wayside Cross? First day I heard about Wayside Cross in the in, in March of that year. Uh, called probably that day I called and uh, set up a tour at Wayside Cross. I went and had my first tour at Wayside Cross uh, in April of 2000. And 14, and as I walked, uh, as I walked through the the front door over at Wayside Cross, um, there was this one student I had, ten years before that, uh, my earliest days of teaching, who I just developed a real heart for, had the worst, saddest life I'd ever known of any kid. Kimberly and I started picking him up and bringing him to church for six months before we were part of this church, and um, and brought him over for Easter dinner and things like that. Just a kid that just connected with my heart. I walked, lost touch with him. Years before, I walk in Wayside Cross that first day. I walk in the front door. Here's that kid walking down the hall, three feet taller. Walks by me, goes, what's up, Mr. A? And then just keeps walking. <laughs> like we've seen each other every day for the last 10 years. And the Lord spoke to me in that moment, you belong here. I met with the director at Wayside Cross, and he sat down with me. And he's like, hey, this never happens, because usually we have people that teach classes for like 30 years and never want to give it up. But I just had a guy retire last week. Are you interested in teaching a class here? I was like... Yeah. <laughs> so I started teaching a class every week at Wayside Cross. Um, started mentoring guys um, shortly thereafter. And um, and that has become one of the most uh, meaningful parts of my life. I'm, um, I, I believe very much that if, uh, if 
any number of things different in my life that I had no control over. Wayside Cross could be a place that I would need to be and um, would want people to come and, and love me and be my friend if, if that was a place I needed to stop for a while. And I, it is a privilege of my life to go and spend time over there. And I tell you this story because I hope, you, I hope it helps you see just one small example in one small man's life of how much God cares about these things, of how many circumstances and situations God had to orchestrate for all of that to happen so that I could continue doing what I felt God had called me to do and then hopefully lead some of my friends to do the same because it's so close to the heart of God that he orchestrated all those crazy events, roundhouse conversation, uh, Psalm 41 moment and all that so that he could fling fling open some doors so that I'd have opportunities to share his heart in caring for the poor and the weak and the needy. But my experience only makes sense and is only trustworthy because it's interpreted and supported by what God's word says about God's heart for the poor. So let me read a little bit more of Psalm 41 that I read that morning. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. God Almighty cares so much about the poor, the weak, and the needy that he says that anyone else who cares about them will be blessed, delivered, protected, sustained, restored. And this goes all the way back to the formation of the people of God, the book of Deuteronomy. God goes to great lengths to make it clear to his people that whenever there's anyone poor, you guys, the rest of you, take care of them. And then Jesus steps on the scene as the perfect expression of God's heart. And what stands out perhaps more than anything else is that the kind of people Jesus hung out with were the kind of people that no one else wanted to hang out with. The poor, the weak, the needy, the outcast, the vulnerable. Those are the people he spent his time with. He stopped everything for. He let his plans be interrupted for. He cleared his calendar for. No question about it. God cares deeply for the poor, the weak, and the needy. But is it true that he repays us if we do the same? I mean, could I really do something that would make the holy God say, I'm going to pay you back for that? This is the shocking part, right? It's not shocking that God cares for the poor. It's shocking that he says, if you do this, I'm going to pay you back. Is this just proverbial hyperbole? That's fun to say. Is this just God exaggerating, right? Like it can't actually mean what it sounds like it means, right? These aren't just rhetorical questions. These are questions that you and I have to answer. And your answer to these questions is the difference between you leaving here and heading straight to Milwaukee or you going home and putting your feet up on the Ottoman. If God really cares so much about my attitude toward the poor and needy that he will actually pay me back, then my entire life needs to be interrupted and adjusted. So is it really true that he'll pay us back? Well, if this was such a big deal to God, we should expect Jesus might have something to say about it, right? So let's see what we can find. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Jesus is talking about the difference between doing acts of righteousness to be seen by others to impress them or doing acts of righteousness in secret to be seen only by God. And he says this, Matthew 6. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he goes on in the following verses to say similar things about praying and fasting. So maybe he just mainly cares about not being show-offs. So let's keep looking. Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6. Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, how it's easy to love somebody who loves you back. Anyone can do that. It's hard to love people who treat you like garbage. Luke 6, Jesus says this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Okay, so now that's helpful. We know that God has a huge and tender heart for the poor, and it's his desire that his children share his heart and concern for the poor to bear a family resemblance. Now we know from the book of Exodus that if God wants to feed hungry people, he can make it rain bread, right? Been there, done that. He could do that anytime he wants to. That's junior varsity in God's league, apparently. Bread from heaven. You want to see the real show? What he really wants is when people are hungry, for his children to go and take bread down the street to satisfy their hunger, or across the globe to feed the hungry. That's better than bread falling from heaven. That's more beautiful. That's more fitting. That's more pleasing to the God who has given you bread for that exact reason. So here we go. If you want to resemble your father and act like sons and daughters of the most high God, one of the ways you can do that is by lending to those who can't pay you back. But you don't have to worry because your father has deep pockets. And you're never going to not have what you need because you gave too much. Your reward will be great. I think he means it. Let's look at one more. Luke 14. Jesus is eating a meal at the house of one of the lead Pharisees. And they're scrutinizing everything he says and does. Because they want to trip him up. And Jesus has all kinds of hard things to say to, to these people who think very highly of themselves and who look very far down their noses on other people, especially the poor, the dirty, the broken, the outcasts, those who are most needy. And so Jesus, surrounded by all these self-important people at this party, turns to his host and says this, Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He says you're getting it all wrong. When you throw a party, don't invite the people who make you feel important and popular, the people who are going to invite you over next week, Invite the people who no one else is inviting. The people who won't impro improve your social status 
or elevate your popularity, your reputation. Invite the people who offer you nothing but their presence, their brokenness, their smells, their improprieties, their insensitivities, their baggage, their inconveniences, their complications. Invite those people if you want to be blessed. Invite them and you will be repaid at the resurrection of those who have done justice. What? The resurrection of all who have been merciful. The resurrection of all who have clearly resembled their heavenly father's heart. Jesus says, do that and payback is coming. How are you guys sitting still right now? I appreciate you sitting still, actually, and being polite. But doesn't this just make you want to go through a party for people who can't pay you back? For people that everyone else is forgetting about? This is who we are. This is why we're here. Jesus saved people who, so that we, he could bring to himself a people zealous for good works like this. We don't have to wonder what we're supposed to do with our lives as Christians. We don't have to wonder what God's will is for our lives. And then crazy of all crazies, as if the mercy and grace that we've already received isn't enough, Jesus promises that there's more on the way. Whatever we give, spend, sacrifice, lay down for the sake of the poor and the weak, we will be repaid refilled, restocked, replenished, rewarded by our Father who has sent us to go do his heart's great work. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Is this true? If it's not, I don't know what true is. How much more clear could God be He is inviting us to represent and reflect his heart for the poor. And because he knows our weakness and our pride and our fear and our excuses, he tacks on this promise of payback over and over and over again, right? Because he knows that we're, we have this God instilled motivation to pursue our own joy, right? So he's like, look, you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. I will pay you back. Before we move on, just a quick word about this payback. What, what, what is this payback that, we, that, we, that God promises us? Because we, we always have this danger of um, ignoring God promises God has made, right? That's a danger for us. But we also have this danger of latching on to promises that God didn't actually make. So just want to help us not do that. Many people read into the Bible what uh, has come to be known as like health and wealth or prosperity gospel, right? That if I have enough faith or I do the right things, God's promised me I will have nicer cars, nicer clothes, nicer house. I won't get sick, things like that. Um, I hope it goes without saying, but that's not what's promised here or anywhere else in the Bible. Um, there's a very clear emphasis in all the things Jesus is talking about, the promises he set before us. There's a very clear future emphasis to these, to these rewards. Um, treasure in heaven is, is certainly not the promise of like a nicer car uh, tomorrow, right? Um, but whatever kinds of rewards and payback God has in mind, we can be confident that it's far greater than any material uh, 
any material possession that we could acquire for ourselves or any material possession that he could provide us with right now, right? So we need, to, we need to be clear about the future-mindedness of this. But that being said, we also need to remember that this is the same God who did say things like, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In 2 Corinthians 9. And also, he who supplies seeds to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Right? So in other words, generous people usually get their stocks replenished so they can keep on being generous. Not so they can buy a new car and have nice clothes. And that's to say nothing of the overflowing joy that comes through the Holy Spirit when we actually just live according to our design as God's renewed people. The joy that comes from sharing in his mission and and fleshing out his heart. So that's probably sufficient on question number one. I don't feel out of line in saying that if the answer to question number one is really yes, that we would be foolish not to do something about it. And I know many of you are already doing much about it. But question number two might get us a little bit more uncomfortable. But I think Jesus is okay with that. Are we more... More than just foolish if we don't do something about this. Question number two, is this optional? Or perhaps a better way to ask it is, just how personally does God take this? Just how personally does he take it? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. That seems pretty personal to me. Like if you were to do something to care for or provide for one of my five children in a time of need, I would receive that, not just as you loving my kids, but as you loving me. And my response of gratitude would be, would reflect that. Even though I don't even own one cattle on one hill. But we don't have to rely on our own imaginations to guess at just how personally God takes our attitudes and actions towards the poor. We don't have to rely on our imaginations because he's talked about it so many times and in so many ways. And I said this, this part gets a little uncomfortable, but I want you to hear most loudly and clearly, and I believe this is in line with God's heart, that this is above all an invitation to each of us to get busy doing the very thing we were created to do as renewed image bearers of God who is making all things new. This is an invitation motivated by the promise of reward, our own God-instilled pursuit of joy. Sharing God's heart for the poor is above all an invitation to you for more joy. And I want you to hear that loudest. But we must also grapple with this reality. If concern for the poor is so deeply rooted in the very heart of God, then my attitude toward the poor reveals something very true about my relationship to God's heart. If concern for the poor is such a big deal to God's heart, then my attitude towards the poor reveals something very true about my relationship to the heart of God. And this is a much needed warning for all of us. 
And God in his goodness provides us not just with invitations to joy, but with sobering warnings. And so I think perhaps the best thing to do is just sit and listen together to what God has said along these lines. A couple more Proverbs that we won't cover. Proverb 20, 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, God's addressing his people who are wondering why God's not paying attention to all their really nice religious things that they're doing. They say, God, we're fasting and praying and being humble and you don't seem to notice any of it. We're doing our part. Why aren't you doing your part? And here's how God responds in Isaiah 58. He says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then shall you call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and I'll say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. That's called thinking you know what God wants and being tragically wrong. In the book of Jeremiah, God speaks to Jehoiakim, who's a king of Judah, about his great error as the king of God's people. Jeremiah 22, God says, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? In other words, you think you're a king just because you live in a fancy palace? Is that what makes you a king? He says, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me? In other words, he's saying to Jehoiakim, you should have learned from your father Josiah, who used his position to take care of the poor and the needy. Because after all, that's what it means to know me. If you care nothing for the poor and needy, you don't know me, God says. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 25 with me. I want us to give our careful attention to this. Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he's sharing with them some of the most mysterious and confusing truths that have ever been shared, undoubtedly. But he doesn't leave much room for confusion in this one part of Matthew 25. Look at me, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, 
and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And King Jesus will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How personally does God take our treatment of the poor and the needy? What more could be said? What more could be said? Now, this is not salvation by works. This is not salvation by works instead of faith. This is simply what a life of faith looks like. This is the difference between saying Jesus is your Lord and living as if Jesus is your Lord. That's what Jesus is helping us understand. Lots of people can call him Lord. James, the brother of Jesus, explains it like this. James 2, you're familiar. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. John, Jesus' beloved disciple, says this, 1 John 3. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Faith in Jesus that does not translate into care for the poor is dead faith and empty talk. Apparently we can fool ourselves and a lot of other people, but on the last day there will be no fooling Jesus. 
Is being generous to the poor an optional part of the Christian life? Praise God it's not. He takes such an interest in the poor that Jesus emptied himself and became poor. And then when he left, he turned to his people and pointed at the poor and said, these are my people, take care of them for me. And now we have the privilege of giving something back to our Savior out of love and gratitude and union with his heart. He has told us what we can give him. It's more properly, though, called lending to him than giving because God is far more abundantly generous than we could ever be. We're going to see that again. Think of it like this. Being generous to the poor is only a requirement when you become a Christian as much as swimming is a requirement when you become a fish. It's just what you do. That brings us to question three, which I won't spend much time on because if we've gotten questions one and two right, all we really need is just a little point in the right direction and we should be ready to run. So that's all I want to do for a minute here is point you in a few directions and encourage you to get running. Because like I said, back after my Psalm 41 experience, I had such an eagerness and conviction to share in Christ's heart, but I didn't know how exactly to, to, to get started in it, what to do. Many of you are already actively in this, and there are many and endless ways to do it, and I would encourage all of you to make it a matter of prayer this week. The Lord will open doors. He doesn't put conviction on our hearts and then leave us with zero opportunity to walk it out. But even so, if this is helpful, I just want to highlight a few um, opportunities, a few ways so that, that we have readily available in front of us. So question number three, what can we do about this? What can we do about this? As you pray and seek the Lord's direction for your next steps, keep in mind that this doesn't need to be some kind of a mystical experience. Most of it is just opening your eyes to the needs around you and the things that you have, the ability you have to meet those needs. Look around your life and ask yourself, what has God entrusted to me and how can I be increasingly generous with those things? So most of us need to take another hard look at how we spend our money and remember that we are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. It's not our money. And a steward's job is to distribute his master's things to the people around him according to their needs. And the promise of treasure in heaven will infinitely surpass all the material indulgence that this life offers. We need to take a look at how we spend our money. In addition to financial generosity, we should also take our cues from God himself, who didn't just send a check. He sent his son. His embodied presence. People obviously need their basic needs cared for. But perhaps the most painful element of poverty is the loneliness that often accompanies it. How can your family welcome in somebody who needs a family? How can you be a friend to somebody who needs a friend? 
How has God positioned you to carry on his incarnational ministry to the poor, the weak, and the needy around you? Let's make more room in our hearts, in our homes, in our budgets, in our calendars, in our church. You know about Wayside Cross. I shared with that. Wayside Cross is a great ministry right here in downtown Aurora. Ministers to men, to women, and children in various ways. The residential programs that offer men a place to stay and a Bible-based program for seven months. They want to match every resident up with a one-on-one mentor. And you get to spend an hour a week being a friend, sharing the gospel, getting to know somebody else's life, maybe being the one person that they can trust and talk to about certain things. The women's program has similar opportunities to get connected with the women and the children there. There's Hesed House right here in our community that serves Uh, gives a place to sleep and food every single day of the year to the homeless in our community. There's opportunities to serve there. World Relief, we're connected with World Relief. Some of you are uh, signing up to come help tutor kids that need some help. We've got year-round opportunities to to welcome families as they come to the United States, coming from war-torn countries, from all kinds of trauma, and, and welcome them into our families and our lives. Be their first friends when they arrive here. Take them to their gro- first grocery shopping experience. Set up their apartments for them. World Relief has plenty of opportunities for us to get involved. Op- adoption, foster care, safe families, opportunities right here for us to welcome in children who need a home. I love the example we have in our church of that. We've got friends in Cambodia, friends who have very little. There's a pregnancy information center in Aurora. People just need a friend, somebody to talk to, somebody to encourage and support, somebody to tell them that there's hope beyond the the mistakes or the trouble of their lives. I personally won't be satisfied as a pastor until our church has a more thriving ministry to people with disabilities. To be a, a haven for families who suffer the loneliness. There's ministries like Freedom Firm and International Justice Mission who are around the world rescuing girls from slavery can make contributions. There's organizations like Compassion International where you can send money and help kids, orphans around the world who need to be taken care of because they don't have parents. There's all kinds. If you need any help, most of these organizations, if you just wrote down a few, you can Google them and find out what you need to know. If you need any help connecting, feel free to contact me. I'd be more than happy to point you in the right direction with organizations. Maybe it's not through an organization. It doesn't have to be. Maybe you've got neighbors, relationships God's already given you, and there's a call to step up your love and your generosity towards them. And we don't need to wait till COVID's over. Things are undoubtedly more complicated, obviously. But the needs of the poor haven't stopped because there's a pandemic. If anything, they've just gotten, they've increased, they've gotten worse. These are opportunities to love and serve the poor. And we can all engage in it right now. For some of us, the very best thing we can do right now is start paying more attention to other people's problems than our own. 
Let me close by repeating what I've been saying all along. As people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, pouring ourselves out for the sake of the poor and the weak is not just a thing we can and should do. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. If we're not doing this, we're not just missing out, we're missing it. When it's all said and done, your heart for the poor, Jesus' words, not mine, when it's all said and done, your heart for the poor, not just your words, but your actions, will be some kind of a litmus test that reveals the genuineness of your faith in Jesus. And my insincerest apologies, but if you're listening to me right now, you have forever lost your ability to stand before Jesus and say, but I had no idea. But I'm confident that we are a church who will take these things increasingly to heart as we pursue more of what God has for us as his people. And I'm confident that whatever it looks like for him to pay us back, we will never regret pouring ourselves out for the sake of the poor and the weak. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, would you please come forward? We get to close our time stepping up and into this together, reminding ourselves that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith in the one who gave himself for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus stood up one day and declared that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. As you take the bread and cup today, you are declaring your union with Christ in his mission to bring good news to the poor to be good news to the poor.